The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pod of thunder and rock and roll, and it is about rock and roll today. One of the great, uh, great performers in rock and roll history, probably the greatest drummer uh, of all time. Uh, talking about Neil Peart and last Friday, the music world and Rush fans and rock and roll fans worldwide were shocked when news broke about, uh, about Neil's passing after a long battle with brain cancer, a battle that very few knew he was fighting. It was such a shock and a surprise to everybody except for uh, Neil's inner circle. Uh, Neil actually passed on January 7th, but in a testament to the very private life he always uh, led and ultimately led, uh, news of his death didn't reach the world at large until Friday the 10th. So we're celebrating the life and legacy and music of one of the most greatest, most influential, most prolific drummers and lyricists in, uh, in not just rock history, but music history. And I've got the two perfect people to do it. Uh, the Fab Three returns, uh, drummer Mike Portnoy, who was in uh, Neil's inner circle. And, of course, uh, drummer Charlie Benante, who was super influenced by uh, Mr. Peart. Uh, the Fab Three back together again under uh, sad circumstances, but very cathartic to talk about uh, a band and a drummer that had a huge impact in, uh, on all of us in different ways. Mike was actually friends with Neil, like I said. Uh, Charlie met him because of me and my dressing room, which I was not allowed in. You'll hear that story. Uh, lots of great tales and memories, uh, songs and uh, thoughts about the band, the music, favorite solos, favorite songs, favorite drum patterns, favorite lyrics. Favorite Neil Peart memories overall. This is the Talk is Jericho tribute to the true goat of rock and roll drumming, Rush drummer Neil Peart, and we start now. One of the worst days in rock and roll history uh, yesterday, total shock to the world, was the uh, the passing of the professor, Neil Peart. Peart. Is it Peart? What's the official? Peart. Peart? That's yeah, what, I, I have a story. I, I'll tell you a story about that when, when we get get to it. But yeah, just uh, jump, we, we, got, we got Mike Portnoy and Charlie Benanti, two. Obviously, we've done this show many times before. Great friends of mine, but probably two guys that I know most influenced by Neil Peart because you guys are obviously very successful drummers in your own right, but both completely influenced by by Neil. I, I think it's pretty correct to say that, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So what? Uh, first of all, Mike, what's your story about about Neil's last name? Well, uh, well, first of all, I want to say uh, you, you summed it up really well by saying one of the you know worst days in rock and roll history. It really is yeah. that colossal. It really is. I think it's 
you know, for us, it's it's as big of a loss as John Lennon or, uh, you know, maybe John Bonham or for for me personally, Frank Zappa. I mean, this is up there maybe as big, if, if not even bigger. It's just a colossal loss for rock fans, music fans and drummers, you know. I, I think the, 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 the general population, if you know anything about rock and roll, most people would say, who's the greatest rock and roll drummer of all time? And from exactly. my generation, obviously, like you said, you could say Bonham and there's a couple others, but from, from the generation I grew up in, universally, it would be Neil Peart. Everybody would say that. Yeah. I mean, he's the greatest Absolutely. drummer of all time. Even to people who don't know a lot about music would say that. Like, who's the greatest guitar player? Eddie Van Halen. Who's the greatest frontman? Freddie Mercury. Who's the greatest drummer? Neil Peart. So this is a yep. big a big deal all across the board just from that level alone. And, and I, I mean, the social media is, you know, the last 24 hours, it's what a, what a tribute. First of all, what a great tribute that Neil would have probably hated yeah. <laughs> all this attention. But, uh, but like you said, it goes beyond just drummers and musicians. You know, you're seeing like, uh, you know, I saw like Chuck D post about him or, or, uh, you know, people, actors, you know, I'm seeing actors and actresses and, and film directors. And it, it goes way beyond just the music industry and way beyond just rock or progressive rock fans. It's, you know, like you said, everybody knows who he is just from his reputation of being the greatest drummer of all time. When you go onto Instagram right even now, just go through your feed, like everybody posting about Neil everybody i don't care literally every yeah. single post it's it's incredible whether it's guys like us or whether it's jack black or kevin smith or other musicians paul stanley you know anybody everybody's got picking their favorite picture of neil and, and posting right. be, be, because of this i guess we can kind of go in, go into to when was the first time you ever heard rush and heard neil charlie wow it goes back to uh being a kid in the Bronx and some of the older kids that I hung out with the teenagers, uh, that's how I kind of found out about, you know, bands or music. And, uh, it was again in my friend Petey's uh, basement and he was, he had rush and that's how I discovered rush. And, um, I remember putting my head between the speakers and just kind of closing my eyes and just listening to it. And this was all, all the world's a stage. And, um, yeah, I mean, for I think being a drummer is like as far back as I can remember being so small and playing drums. I appreciated drumming, uh, Buddy Rich, all those guys, John Bonham. But it, it, when Neil hit me, uh, that's when I really started to focus on drum playing and how to approach drumming. And um, I learned a lot from from him from his phrasing and his style well neil was the drummer that actually made drum hooks like he was so musical right on the drums that um if you if you break down his performances on, on songs it's as if he, he was he's a lyricist but he's he's doing both at the same time the drum parts that he would write, he wasn't just doing it on impulse. Those parts were written. Um, just the beginning of Spirit of Radio, the way him and Getty come in, um, it's just beautiful. Um, I, I, I don't know what else to say about it, but as time goes on in this in this talk, I'm sure 
more and more will come out. And on an emotional level, it hit me hard yesterday when I heard about it. And um, because you just go back to your whole childhood and rushing home from school to play certain songs by Rush, you know, feeling like I was accomplishing something. And, uh, you know, to this day, I said, it, you know, yesterday that he he's responsible for the drummer that I am today and the way I approach music. Uh, don't forget, he was the lyricist for Rush and it made me want to take on a bigger role in a band. So that's why uh, writing music for the band has always been I, I put that in front of the drumming. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, it's a huge, huge, huge uh, loss. And people will, I'm sure Mike will, will say the same thing. Mike, w w when did you first discover Neil and Rush? Like Charlie said, it, it, he came around at a the time for me where I wanted to be a better drummer. And like, I'll admit, like, I remember hearing the name Rush in the late 70s. And I just, to be honest, I never spent time listening to them. I kind of wrote them off as, I, I would hear like Closer to the Heart on the radio. And I kind of thought that they were just like, like a super tramp or a sticks. Maybe it was just Getty's, Getty's high voice. I just kind of wrote them off as something like that. But then I remember distinctively uh, hearing YYZ when, when moving pictures came out. And that was suddenly I realized, okay, okay we're talking about like a band of like the most incredible musicians I've ever heard. And at that point, I got completely hooked and obsessed and worked my way backwards. And literally, uh, especially, you know, uh, the late 70s stuff like Hemispheres, Farewell to Kings, Permanent Waves, I became completely obsessed. And like like Charlie said, it was a point in my life. Uh, I was uh, in junior high school and I was getting better at drums. So I wanted a drummer that would really challenge me to like to learn his parts. And I remember like trying to learn YYZ or La Via Strangiato or even the songs you take for granted. Like you, you hear Tom Sawyer or Spirit of Radio or Limelight on the radio every day. And you kind of take for granted that the depth of the uh, virtuosity that's going on there, you know, like, like right. every drum pattern and fill was just so meticulously crafted. Neil was never the type of drummer that would just play on the fly you know, those every single fill was thought out and crafted, and that's why that's why he became the ultimate air drummer drummer because everybody learned those fills, right. and you could count on Neil to play them each and every show. You know, consistently. That's what uh, I read. Something that Stuart Copeland said that he said that Neil Neil is the most air drummed drummer of all time. Yeah, absolutely. You know? um, here's a story that you guys haven't uh, probably have never heard somebody who got into Rush from this aspect. So growing up in Canada, growing up in Winnipeg, like you said, Rush was always on the radio and, you know, they would come through town, although they never played in Winnipeg in the 80s when I, I never saw them live until until Neil came back in 2002. But um, so you knew Rush, but you guys remember Bob and Doug McKenzie? Of from course, of course. How, how huge they were. They had their own album. It was the yeah. Bob, yeah. Bob, and they had a song called "Take Off to the Great White North," Love which Getty Lee, yeah, you remember that. So Getty sang on it, and Neil played the drum solo, and that's when I really started getting into Rush. Was because that drum solo was so great 
I went out and bought, well, I want to hear something about Rush. So I went and bought Signals was the first album I had. And I remember I made a little poster that I stuck in my bedroom door because I knew Getty Lee and Neil Peart from the uh, Great White North song, but I didn't know who the other guy was. So I just wrote <laughs> Rush, Alec, uh, Rush, Neil Peart, Getty Lee, Signals. And I tried to draw the album cover, but poor Alex uh, Lifeson got, got left out because he never played on the Baba Doug McKenzie song. <laughs> but like you said when when you start going through that period because i'm a, a couple years younger than you guys but uh and once again you'll probably hate this but you know my affinity for my affection for the 80s years of 70s bands but because right. that's when i got into rush was the first album that i ever bought was signals and then grace under pressure so i kind of got into them in that stage the, the keyboard kind of electronic drumming but neil was even great at that as well uh, uh, talking about the electronic drumming and signals, uh, Charlie. I don't know if you saw them uh, at the end of the Signal store when they were writing "Grace Under Pressure." They did a, a five night stand at Radio City Music Hall, and um, at those shows, uh, they premiered three of the songs they were writing for "Grace Under Pressure," and it was Neil's first time using electronic drums. But he didn't have the spinning riser yet. So at those shows at Radio City, he actually had to play those three songs with his back towards the audience. Really? Um, yeah. And I, I remember going to those shows and I, I brought in my own tape recorder and I bootlegged the shows myself. And I just remember <laughs> listening yeah. to those three songs. I think it was uh, Kid Gloves, Red Detector A and Body Electric. And I, and I just remember listening to them over and over and over and over and over, you know, months before Grace Under Pressure came out. <laughs> What did you think of that, uh, Mike? I know I just watched Beyond the Lighted Stage last night, which is a great documentary that focuses on all eras of Rush, and especially Neil and his life and, and the tragedies that he suffered. But you said that when the electronic era came that you kind of stepped out at that point in time. Well, I mean, I never stepped out. I followed Rush, you know, to, you know, to this day. I follow everything they do. I've always seen them on every tour. I always lo loved and respected everything Neil do did. But, you know, like, like any band, you have a soft spot for the – the, the era sure. when you fell in love with them. So my era was, you know, 2112 through Signals. And, you know, I still loved Grace Under Pressure and Power Windows. And, you know, I still followed them and loved them. But, you know, my the soft spot for me is, uh, well, the, not only the period that I fell in love with, but also it was their more progressive period where they were doing longer songs, which appealed sure. to me because of the style of music I was doing uh, in my life. So that is, you know, the era that really, spoke to me but i i've always loved everything they've done and i've always followed them each and every album and tour what did you think charlie about that era um well i didn't I, I okay so i didn't like grace under pressure as much as i liked um power windows really power windows was awesome and yeah. i was like i thought yeah you know because i felt power windows was a combination of grace and signals and um a little bit of moving pictures but uh there's some awesome songs on that record and mm -hmm. um even even though i may have not liked uh some of the albums i still went to see them every time you know i don't think i've ever ever missed a rush show you know um and, and it didn't really matter to me that the electronics were you know involved in it i just thought you know that band always kind of took it up a notch and if this was something that they embraced then i should give it uh you know a listen that's the way i always approached that band which is a great point and like you said e e even for me you know kind of working my way backwards 
and you'll get a kick out of this, Mike, how I kind of got into older Rush because I wasn't really hip to it, even into the 90s, which might sound a little crazy, but, you know, time moves on and time stands still. And uh, I got into older Rush was the, with the uh, Working Man Rush tribute album, mm. which you and Billy Sheehan basically played the rhythm section for the entire record. That's how I got yeah. into Analog Kid and Anthem and uh, Bytor and the Snow Dog. And, and, and all those tunes was from the tribute album that you guys did. Yeah, that was an honor to do that. I, I remember uh, when we did that, it was it was my first time working with Billy, which was great within itself, but uh, getting to... I, now I not, not only played drums on all those songs, but I was kind of like the musical director and picking the tracks and stuff and uh, got to oversee a lot of that. So, yeah, doing that was an honor and, and so much fun, you know. And I, I put in a lot of um, little nuggets, too. Like, you could listen to... Uh, you know, La Via Strangiato, I, I, I'm quoting like the drum part of Body Electric and, mm-hmm. you know, sticking in lots of different things, you know, kind of just for, for the hardcore Rush fans. But yeah, that was what, a, what, a, what an honor that was to do that album. It was classic uh, Neil, too, because I was reading, I think we talked about this before, some magazine or something that they asked him his opinion. He's like, yeah, it's just a bunch of bar band musicians playing <laughs> playing Rush songs. And I was like, what fucking bar do you hang out in, man? Yeah. I want to go see. I want to see those bar bar musicians. Do you do you remember yeah. reading that? Did you ever see that, Mike? I did. Uh, I remember at the time I was I was you know a little upset by it because I put so much heart and soul into that album, but um, uh, I think I think some 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 stuff got kind of misinterpreted or or uh, taken out of context. And I you know I don't even know if Neil even heard it back at that point. I don't know. You know it's funny about Neil, like you know as as anybody that knows anything about him knows he you know he's not the type that wants to he doesn't want the adulation he doesn't want the attention whenever i you know spend time with him i never talked about rush or drumming although quick funny story uh the first time i actually did get to meet him you know after years and years and years of wanting to meet him the way i met him for the very first time is that i was asked to be the guest editor for an issue of rhythm magazine in england and in this issue, I was able to interview four people that were like my heroes. And I interviewed like Nick Mason and Bill Bruford. Neil Peart was one of them. And so my first meeting with him, I kind of was allowed to ask all the fanboy questions that normally would have completely turned him off. But because I was kind of playing the role of an interviewer that first time, I was able to get it out of my system and ask him everything I always ever wanted to ask him. But under any other condition, he probably would have immediately switched off and <laughs> never talked to me again. So <laughs> it gave me that great opportunity uh, upon our first meeting. Yeah, because that's something that's very, very famous kind of, you know, uh, story. And, and, and it was uh, a given that Neil didn't really meet fans and didn't really like uh talking to people because he was very shy and the very, to limelight yeah. that line uh, i can't pretend the stranger is a long-awaited friend i mean that's a, a brilliant line I what a great that. line is that from limelight or what, what a song is that from yeah yeah that's limelight. Yes, that's that's limelight the longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards the longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards why bring this up because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.
like we were talking yesterday, his lyrics, like I always loved uh, Roll the Bones, the, the line, why are we here? Because we're here, roll the bones. Like, like why, what, what, what does it all mean? What does it matter? We're here, roll the dice, see how your life goes type thing. I just love that shit. Or, or time stands still, old friends growing older. Mm-hmm. Like, man, those lines, like, they're, I would get them tattooed on my body if, if I ever well, wanted to get I, a lyric tattooed. I, would, I always thought, like, certain lines from their songs, like, always kind of resonated and it just would always hit me in certain situations that one line from Tom Sawyer, which I posted yesterday where it says, you know, change isn't permanent, but change is. It's just something that I I always, I always felt Neil was the smartest drummer (laughs) out of of everyone, but intellectually speaking, the way he, uh, like I said before, the way he approached it, um, he's a very well-read human being, and when you read an interview with Neil, you almost have to bring a thesaurus with you to go, "Oh, what's that?" Word? <laughs> right. Um, but in a in a drumming world, some of his fills and just his approach to it, I also needed a drumming thesaurus to uh, decipher exactly what was that that just passed by, you know? Yeah, you know, it's it's like I'm not a drummer, obviously. I, I look at it from a fan standpoint, and but I am a, a lyricist. And, you know, I, I, I wrote yesterday, like when I was a kid, I remember it was Columbia. Remember the Columbia, is it Columbia Music House or Columbia mm-hmm. where you get 13 albums for a cent? And then you got to go buy, you know, 13 more albums for 15 bucks each. And you don't have any money when you're a kid. So you try to figure out a way to get out of it. What do you you guys used to have that music? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I got a bunch of Rush cassettes because you just go through. And Moving Pictures was the one that I got. And obviously probably Rush's best record. But when you see Red Barchetta and you don't have a Google, you know, machine and, and you might have a, a, a encyclopedia or something, but for some reason I thought a Barchetta was a fish. And when I found out it was actually a car, then I started looking up red Barchettas, go to the library and try and find what, what do you have? You know, any books on Barchetta? I became obsessed with a Barchetta because of Neil's song. And I was like, when I'm, when I grew up, I'm going to buy a red Barchetta. I haven't thought of that really since until yesterday when he passed away. And I was like, holy shit. Like I wanted to buy a red Barchetta only because of the song and then didn't even realize what the real lyrics were about the whole sci-fi thing and, you know, hiding the car because the motor, the motor lodge is banned cars. And it's just the whole, the stories he would write were so much more than just the songs. And that gave you an extra edge when you're a Rush fan because you you got some... It was like being an Iron Maiden fan. You learned something from reading Rush lyrics and listening to those songs. He would probably correct you too and say, it's not Red Barchetta, it's Red Barchetta. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Was there certain songs that you guys got into because of the lyrics and, and, and the fantasy behind them? Dude, Spirit of Radio was one of those songs that was played in the summer. I heard it everywhere. Yeah. My friend, my friend Nicholas used to have a big boombox, and we used to walk around the neighborhood. And that song, when it would come on, we would just sit and just kind of be absorbed in it because it was – that was a, a hit, you know? Could you ever hear that song on the radio today, like Top 40 Radio? No, but yeah. the Spirit – there's so many parts of, of, of the Spirit of Radio that was – 
that is so to this day it just resonates you know glittering prizes and endless compromises mm-hmm. um being in this business you realize like wow that song i can relate to that song you know being in the business you know it's uh it's, it's one of their best and it's one of his uh lyrically it's one of one of his best mm. how about you mike well you know i guess there were a couple different phases to his lyric writing i mean when he's when he's in the early Rush albums, a lot of it was very fantasy and story-driven, you know, very Ayn Rand-influenced. But he would, have, he would write these stories, like Bytor and the Snow Dog, or, or you know, the whole 2112 yeah. story, or, or Hemispheres, or Cygnus X1. So, uh, you know, that was that phase. Xanadu, Xanadu, which, which, which was actually written and based by, on uh, the film Citizen Kane. But then... You know, around permanent waves, he started to get more metaphoric and more poetic, and stuff like different strings or, uh, you know, free will. If you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. I mean, all the, you know, things like that, or or hemispheres. Like Charlie just quoted, um, uh, but change the the line about change. But he also had uh, circumstances. He had uh, the more the things change, the more they stay the same. You know, he was writing those kind of lines that just made you think and. He was obviously such a brilliant intellect. You could tell that he read a lot of books. You could tell that he had this endless vocabulary and, you know, source of wisdom. And that later went on to translate when he became a, a great writer. You know, I, um, his book, yeah. Ghostwriter, that he wrote after his, his first daughter and wife passed away, that's one of the most inspiring books I've ever read. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a story of survival and, and you know... Um, you know, losing somebody that you love and finding yourself. And, uh, you know, I've gone on to read all of his other books he wrote after that, but he was obviously such a, uh, not only an intellect and such a cerebral smart person filled with wisdom, but he also was just so filled with life. The the fact that he would go out there and ride his motorcycle from eight in the morning till three o'clock, you know, to go from one city to the next while Rush was on tour. To me, that would have been the most energy I've ever expended in a lifetime, <laughs> but he would do that every day and then go to sound check. And then, you know, I, I'm normal. I normally wake up for sound check on tour. You know, at that point he had already, you know, traveled, you know, 800 miles on a, on a motorcycle, then sound check, and then has to play a three hour show. So he lived life to such a full appreciation of, you know, seeing nature and, you know, going on hikes and riding his motorcycle and seeing the world. And I really admired that aspect of him as well. Yeah, me too. I was just watching that last night and that that whole uh, part of the of the documentary where, you know, he develops like uh, the uh, the water in his boots that uh, affected him and be- became a fungus and all this other stuff. And it really uh, it was like two weeks where he was in constant pain. But yet he got up there and still delivered, mm-hmm. uh, which is just, it, you know, just that's the type of human being that we're talking about here. Um, and I don't know if I would have done that, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's like you said too, like when you get to a certain point as a musician or as a professional, you know, you can always see it. I'm not going to name any names, but there's certain guys that you watch legendary, let's say guitar players and you watch them play and you go, that guy doesn't practice anymore. You can totally tell it sucks. And here's Neil who completely, goes and puts his ego in his pocket and goes and trains with was it freddie uh, is it gruber freddie gruber Freddy Gruber, 
at whatever age Neil was at the time, 50 years old, 55 years old, and and goes back to becoming a student and relearns his whole technique. I mean, that's that's a true pro because most guys, you know, it's like at our level. I wouldn't do that. I mean, would you guys go and take lessons from somebody? I mean, it just seems like he always wanted to discover new things and to and to gain more knowledge and to be better. Well, he was incredibly humble as yes. well. Right. You know, here's the guy. Here's the guy that's you know pretty much worldly regarded as the greatest drummer of all time. He was the most humble gracious person and and almost like almost embarrassed by the accolades you know what i mean he right he never acted like he was the world's greatest drummer and the fact that like you're saying at that point in his career having won every single award and been on the cover of every magazine he still goes to take lessons and wants to get better and wants to learn more you know he, he was always the student he was the professor but he was always always the student as well but isn't that a te- isn't doesn't that show like uh uh, so you know, hey, all of us, we are, we 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 come from a certain place, uh, and at a certain point in our life, where we are looking for uh, challenges and also the quest of, okay, where is this going to take me next? Maybe uh, you know the type of person that I've read about that he was is like, he would get fulfilled, but then he needed that next thing to fulfill him. So I think he was always on a quest, whether it being the quest for knowledge, the quest for being the top at his game, but really didn't care if people, what people thought about that. He, mm-hmm. it just, it was all about what he felt, mm-hmm. which is like something that is, uh, you know, for us, it's, it's very inspiring uh, from a human, you know, point of view as a musician, you know, too. Yep, absolutely. You know, and, and like we talk about him as a lyric writer, and, and I just pulled up Spirit of the Radio. Like, imagine if you're Getty Lee. I would say this. Like, now our our producer writes a lot of lyrics in Fozzie, so I have to get into his head and, like, Judas, like, what does this mean to to Johnny, and what does it mean to me? And then I have to embody these lyrics and sing them because I have to get them across. What is Getty thinking when he gets, you know, begin the day with a friendly voice, a companion unobtrusive, plays the song that's so elusive, and the magic music makes your morning mood. Now, for us, we know it. We sing it. We know that song like the back of our hand. But can you imagine as a singer getting this lyric sheet and going, what the are you talking about a companion unobtrusive how am i supposed to sing that i still play bass at the same time <laughs> right. like, yeah how, how do but i if, if, have you ever watched the um the classic albums uh 21 12 yes and, yeah. uh, uh getty actually talks i don't know if it's in that that he talks about uh when neil would present him with lyrics and they would work really closely together uh because one thing that lyricists don't do is they don't allow for breathing. <laughs> right. And <laughs> uh, especially in, in our band, Scott would write a ton of words uh, because he's trying to tell a story, but then he also forgets that, oh, wait, the singer has to sing this. And sometimes we have to condense it. And even if you listen to Iron Maiden, there's so many words yes. and songs that I don't know how Bruce does it. This, the, the song Revelation, there's a part where he sings all these words and you hear him take this like, like, you know, breath, you know? Um, and I guess for Getty, uh, he worked really close with, with Neil, but still was able to make Neil happy and vice versa because they again, work together. And if there's one thing I've learned about Rush 
it's like those three guys communicated very well, which is something that most bands don't do. They don't communicate, you know? Right. Yeah, they were they were best friends till the end. I mean, they they you could see uh, beyond the light of stage. Yeah. I think it's like a bonus footage thing where they're sitting at a they're just having dinner together and you could tell they genuinely still love each other's company after, you know, over 40 years together. And wine. Yeah. yeah that, that's, they're actually, they're actually pretty drunk. I just watched it and you can see their yeah. Alex is like, I like wine cause it tastes good and it makes you feel <laughs> funny. You know, and like, like you said, they actually get along as a band, which as all of us know, I mean, none of us have been in a band for 40 years, but even, you know, 20 years, 30 years, Charlie has. Yeah, Charlie yeah. has. You've been, you've been almost forty years. Yeah. So to be in a band with pretty much all the original guys at this point, you're not always best friends, but it seemed like those guys really got along and they really had each other's backs whenever there was problems that came up in their lives. Well, there well the fact Canadian. that they, um, the fact that uh, Getty and Alex stood by Neil when he took those years off yeah. after after his wife and daughter died, they stood by him. They they said, you know, take as much time as you need, or you know, or We'll, we'll even pack it in if that's what you want. And they had the same respect for him when he announced that he wanted to retire at the end of the, you know, the last tour that they did. You know, they stood by him and they respected him as a friend, first and foremost, to do whatever he needed to do in his life. Right. And had no problems with it whatsoever. If the band is done, it's done. And I love that about those guys. And, yeah. uh, you know, be, this is one thing in this business that not a lot of, uh, a lot of people forget how to be human, mm. right, right? Especially right. online, uh, just people are just so hateful and just ready to rag on all of us, you know. The longest field goal ever attempted is seventy-six yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also seventy-six yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What, um, I only met Neil one time, uh, and, and I'll tell the story in a second. Uh, when was the first time you met him? I know, uh, Mike, you were quite close with him, which is really, really cool. Is the first time you met him when you did the uh, the interview with him for the magazine? Yeah, that was the first time I met him. And, um, you know, I've been wanting to meet him my whole life, my whole career. He was always my biggest drum hero. But he was always such a private, insulated guy that he was always impossible to get to. And that's why once I did meet him and then once we did become friends, like it was such an honor to me to know that he was letting me into his inner circle because I knew how exclusive that was. So, yeah, that was my first time meeting him. That was about 15 years ago. And from there, we, we had a great, great relationship. I mean, I would always come by and he'd invite me to soundcheck whenever Rush came through and I'd spend time with him. And, you know, um, he would send me you know, emails a few times a year, we'd have exchanges and his emails were like his books. He didn't send you an email like, Hey Mike, what's up? Having a great year. Hope you're well. No, I would get these like five page <laughs> emails from him that went into metaphors and telling stories about, you know, uh, what he's doing with his daughter. He would send me pictures of her growing up and the pictures of them dressed up in Halloween costumes. So he really, I guess once you were able to kind of infiltrate that inner circle, if, if, if he 
took to you, then then you were like family. And and he was just always so gracious. And I told the story yesterday when he passed. I, you know that the last time I saw him was when I took Max to go see Rush because I wanted Max to see them before they retired and see Neil play and. Neil was just so gracious. He, you know, let Max get up behind his kid and gave him, you know, autographed heads and sticks and opened up his dressing room to us for the, for the entire day and night. And he was just gracious, just so gracious in that respect and so humble. And, and, and the opposite of what his reputation is, his reputation, you know, kind of would make you think he's standoffish and doesn't let anybody in. But if you get in there, there was not, not a sweeter person than him. There must have That's been awesome. a mutual respect there. That's why he, he, he enjoyed talking with you. I mean, because you, if you look at a guy like Neil, because you mentioned he's a very humble, shy guy, but when he meets somebody that's a player that he can respect and a person that he respect, I'm sure that had a lot to do with why he, he enjoyed talking with you. I don't know. To be honest, I don't think he could care less about, you know, who I was or what I did or, you know, the, the drum accolades that I've had. I think he i think we connected on another level i think that's what you needed to get right that's that's how you needed to connect with him you know you couldn't really talk drums he wanted to talk about motorcycles or meals or or wine or you know you know all the different things that he loved um i don't know but in any case it was just a, a relationship that i am just so honored to have had this is a great picture that you post on your instagram of of max your son with with neil and the you, you can always tell the smile on his face is legit. Like just this giant smile on Max's face, getting a chance to yeah. hang out with, with Neil Peart and, and, and be yeah. on his drums. Charlie, you posted a picture on your Instagram from when you were probably 15 years old or, or something like that when you, when you met Neil or your friend met Neil. Tell, tell that story. I was after the show and my, uh, my cousin was with me. In, uh, was it 1980 we, or so? It was like 80 around there and he... After the show, we went to the hotel, which wasn't far from uh, the place where they were playing. Uh, we just followed uh, a couple of people. And sure enough, they all came out and Getty was awesome. And I was so nervous to see Neil. Uh, but he signed my ticket. And that was the story when I asked him what pedals he was using at the moment, because I read an interview that he was changing and he changed everything. And then he looked at me and he said, that's a stupid question. And <laughs> I was, I was, I, was crushed. I was crushed. But I'm telling you, that's the, the best way to turn him off is to let him know that you're a fan and ask him a drumming question. You know, yeah. that was just the way he was. <laughs> but, I, but the thing is, I was I was a fan and it's like, oh, dumb question. All right. Never mind. Uh, I still love him. But then but then let's. Fast forward many, many years later when we were at the Golden Gods thing and me and Mike were hanging out and someone said, Neil's here. And Mike's like, hey, let's go say hi to Neil. And that kid in me was just got so nervous, like my stomach. I remember my stomach just went <laughs> turned. And sure enough, opened the curtain and there he was. And I was just like, holy shit, you know, and uh, talked and we had just did that anthem thing and. Oh, it was just such a great meeting, and it kind of just made me so happy. Did he know that you had done Anthem, Anthrax covered Anthem? Yeah, he he said he said something about. Um, I remember he uh, Mike introduced me, and he said something like, "Oh, I know who you are," and then 
said something about Anthem and dude, I don't even remember what happened after that. I was just <laughs> like, I think, I think he could probably see like heart emojis just coming out of my body, mm. just floating, you know, mm. you, you did pretty good at those golden gods. Mike introduced you to Neil Pert and I introduced you to Tony Iommi. <laughs> great. <laughs> but a, a great story about that. that I mentioned to you guys yesterday when we were texting was that I was the host of the golden gods that year. And what happened was rush was getting an award and uh, Getty was supposed to come pick it up, or Alex was, and something happened where they couldn't. And Ray Daniels called uh, Bernstein, Josh Bernstein, and said, hey, Neil's going to come get the award. And we were like, what? Like, are you kidding me? Like, he's actually going to do, because obviously, like we said, infamous for not doing any of that sort of stuff. And so I said, like, you know, if he's nervous or if he, if he doesn't want to be around anybody, you give him my dressing room and have him hang out in there. And he showed up and he was super paranoid and he didn't want to be around anybody. And uh, Ray brought him in the dressing room and uh, and he used my dressing room, but, but I wasn't allowed in. <laughs> he wouldn't let me in the dressing room. So I could have gotten you in, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what you said. That's where you guys met him. So I'm glad you guys met him because I never actually did. But uh, he did use the dressing room that yeah. I gave him. Um, there's also... Uh, you know, you know. here's the, another thing that a lot of people don't know that Neil used to do. He would, if any, if anybody wrote to him back in the days before the internet, if anybody wrote to him like through Modern Drummer or Magazine or whatever... He hand wrote postcards to each and every single person that ever wrote to him. Really? And then once the internet came around, then the word got out that he was doing it. And then he had to stop. He, he joked that it kind of ruined the internet, ruins his fun little secret. But it's such a, an, an amazing thing that he would do that and literally hand write postcards to every single fan letter he received. That's amazing. But he was famous for. Um like you said, as soon as the show is done, last at, yeah. last symbol crash, running out, it, splitting. I, I think a lot of the reasons they would have those movies at the end of the show is to keep people in their in their seats while he got on his bus and, and did the mad dash out of there. Yeah, I, I uh, the, the last time I saw Rush was in um, on their last tour. I was in Houston, and I was there by myself, and I knew the publicist because because Andy Curran, who works for them is a friend of mine and I went backstage right towards the end just to see what would happen. And I, he totally zipped right past me, ran right. I remember cause he was wearing his, uh, drummer shoes that were their ballet shoes, right? Yeah. I think dance shoes. Dance and he shoes. Would, and he, would it, yeah. tuck, he would tuck the socks above the cuff. Aren't they uh Capizio? That's it. Shoes. Yeah. I remember we socked up so, he, so that it doesn't get caught in the pedal. Yeah. We used to wear those in the eighties, me and Tempesta. <laughs> you used to wear them for you when you were drumming? No, just you know, we were go dancing. No, yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> hey, hey, Chris, do you know that um, at the ver Neil was famous for getting up, waving goodbye and running off the stage, literally running. Yes. But the very, very, very last show they played in L.A. This was the only time he ever did this. He actually ran out to the front and took a bow with Getty and Alex, and they actually took a picture together, the three of them at the front of the stage. It's the only time he's ever step foot on onto the stage really in his whole career was the very last show no kidding yeah that's like the last show that acdc did with uh, cliff williams he actually angus had him walk the catwalk angus's catwalk he had never left the amps and they made him walk the catwalk <laughs> what uh did you guys see that last tour of rush i did of course and mike you saw it too yeah 
that was that was the show I was talking about where I took Max to see. Yeah, we we went to see him in Boston because it was so was brilliant how they did that, where they they did a reverse chronological order and changed brilliant. the set for like the stage setting for whatever era it was, and went all the way back to like a little you know three piece kit for the Working Man era. I thought like super creative, even on that aspect. And the amps being slowly taken away and getting you know getting less and less as time went on as as they were going backwards. It was brilliant. It was awesome, and then they end up in a school like yeah. auditorium. I was so happy with that with that show because I kind of heard rumblings that this is the last, you know, last one. Um, and then the song selection that they chose, I was so happy uh, to hear Natural Science and um, just you know, Lakeside Park, Xanadu. It was just it was awesome, it, and it was like uh, I wish more bands would 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 treat fans like that just you know here we go we're gonna play uh, all these all these things for you you know they did uh, um, jacob's ladder yeah. i mean that that set uh, list was picture per- although i have one qualm with that set list it was picture perfect but when they were going backwards you knew the second to last song was going to be something from fly by night because they were going chronological on every album i only wish that they had chosen in the end because that oh, would have been the, yeah. that would have been the second that would have been the second to last song of the show. It just would have been so fitting. That was my only the only qualm. But otherwise, it was a absolutely picture perfect set list. And I got to see them do uh, losing it. They only did losing it, I think, once or twice. They did it in Toronto when they filmed the DVD. Oh wow! Um, but when when I went to uh, see them and I went to soundcheck, I'm sitting in the, an empty arena. I was pretty much the only person sitting at front of house and they were running losing losing it down just to practice it for the dvd shoot and i got to hear it which was an amazing honor Uh, i love that song the longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards the longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards why bring this up because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70 yard field goal it probably won't go well so set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Did they stop playing because of Neil's tendonitis uh, and all that other stuff? Or did he actually already, was he already starting to get sick with, with the brain cancer at that point? He was, I, I, I'm, from what I know, he wasn't diagnosed yet at that point. I think he legitimately was just, you know, feeling, feeling the, the, the weight of a three hour show. And, and Alex too, Alex was also having arthritis problems, but Neil was having a problem with his foot at that point. And he was just, you know, I saw a, a clip yesterday where he said, you know, he, he's just, he can't picture being 71 years old and playing Neil Peart drum parts. He's like, I could get up there and play Charlie Watts drum parts right. at 71, but I can't play Neil Peart drum parts at 71. And I think he was legitimately just, you know, he, he has the, he had a newborn daughter that he wanted to spend time with because he, he kind of lost that with his first daughter. And I think he legitimately wanted to just retire. And uh, as far as I know, the, the cancer didn't come about till after the tour was over. But you knew about that, right, Mike? You said you were kind of sworn to secrecy. Did he tell you or did you just hear from from? Uh, I don't want to, I don't want to name the story because, you know, that's kind of, but, uh, but yeah, I was, I was made aware within the inner circle and, and knew the progress and how it was going and what was going on. And Neil and I even 
emailed a bit about it and so you know but yeah i mean it was it was uh you know what a what a secret that they held for all these years the fact that he even passed away this week on tuesday and it didn't get out till friday was you know obviously they it was a very very delicate thing not only his passing but you know the fact that he was struggling with this for, for the last few years was really really kept very very private because he's was just such a private person it's unbelievable too like you said it was such a surprise no one do a thing about it even when when i saw it yesterday somebody you know it's one of those ones like when dio died he didn't really die like mm-hmm. he, it was it was kind of a, a hoax for you know and it's like I, well, I i i can't imagine to be honest like like i i've known about this for a couple of years now so i knew it was coming and still when it happened it was still shocking but I can't imagine for all the millions of fans around the world that didn't see it coming. I can't imagine the shock that it must have been yesterday for, for everybody. I'm one of them. I, I can't. I can't imagine. Charlie, did you have any idea? Did you know? Because you're in the you're in the scene too. Um, I heard. Yeah, I heard some things about six months ago. Um, I never said a word. Right. I mean, we keep we keep hearing stories about other people. Yeah, we talk about it quite we, often. That we, that, that we love and cherish and we keep your story. We, we hear stories about them not doing well. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, yesterday was the same day that David Bowie passed, which is oh, wow. crazy too. Remember, remember when that happened? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was another huge secret, you know, it, yeah, it's, exactly. it, it's interesting because yesterday also my kids get up for school. My son drives now, so I don't drive them, but I get up to make sure they get on their way. So it's just messing around online. And yesterday was the uh, 30th anniversary of a show of hands, the Rush live record. So I was just listening to a couple tunes, just remembering like it was kind of a, a you know mid era, 80s era live album with Time Stand Still and Force 10 and those type of tunes. And I was listening to it yesterday, had no idea. And then today I went to pick up my daughters and guess what the gate code was to get into their house? 2112. And I'm like, no, yeah. And I was like, all of these little signs. It was just like, wow, you know, he's uh, very, very uh, poignant for this point in time. Uh, as we start to wind down, we mentioned kind of the Ghost Rider book and how Neil lost his his daughter in a car crash and then lost his wife a year later to cancer and his dog died and his friend, best friend went to jail. Um just the fact he was able to come back from that, even though it took four or five years, like what a what a very strong individual Neil was to be able to do that. Oh yeah, I mean, just like like I said earlier, he's a different type of human than a lot of humans are. Um, but I guess that was how he was brought up as well. You know? Yeah. I I still find it difficult to believe that. Knowing the personalities of Getty and Alex, how they even kind of worked it so well with him, you know, it just seems like a very strong, uh, strange uh, configuration, you know. You mean as far as the chemistry w- 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 with the band? Yeah, because they're kind of goofy, those two, you right? Know? Maybe I'll not tell you what, Neil, Neil is goofy too, though. He really he was just a more reserved manner. Like the movies they would make for the tour videos, right. They would do all these skits and, you know, Neil would be hemming, hemming it up just like the others and wearing, you know, wearing makeup and different costumes and things like that. You know, he was just as goofy, just in a more reserved way. I think I think it was a, a Canadian thing. Yes. I think their personalities as well. They really had a, a real similar, 
I don't know, maybe Chris, maybe you can relate because you're Canadian, but it seems like they're part of like this little club, you know, maybe it's a culture thing, you know, I, I don't know. Well, that's the thing. No, they would, they would, they would always take the piss out of themselves. I mean, what other band would come on to the three stooges? Thing, you know? um, Rash. Actually, like that. One of the greatest lines that he ever wrote to me in an email was about the, these um, these videos that they would make. And he said they used to be accused of taking themselves too seriously. And now they get so carried away with these videos that they even now take their comedy so seriously. <laughs> but that's the thing you, you would see like uh the, you know neil was dressed up as the as the irish drunken policeman or he would be dressed they'd, they'd put him in a in a lady's costume and it is very much a canadian thing that kind of british sense of humor and you can see that in him because i think once again you're talking about a guy and, and you would know this more than the other than the rest of us mike is quiet reserved humble but when he gets around his buddies he's just a dude because i even saw that thing you just sent to us today where you guys were all judging the symbol and when he's with you and terry basio and a couple other guys i'm assuming they're other drummers or whatever he's telling jokes he's right into it you're talking about the stadium symbol it's not an arena symbol it's not a club symbol it's not a it's not a bar symbol and you can tell he's around guys that he feels comfortable with and he's pretty funny good sense of humor type of type of guy yeah he's uh, very very outgoing obviously well-spoken and and he would he would you know he would uh hold court you know telling stories and philosophies and just you know talking about books he was reading or his travels uh you know even that night you know we went out for dinner afterwards uh, all of us and you know he, he was just a very 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 relaxed and outgoing when he was around friends like that that's awesome. You know, as 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 time moves forward and the music industry changes, and you know, uh, arena bands are getting harder and harder to 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 find because just the way the world is. I really appreciate and and I'm proud and happy for the fact that Rush, when they did pack it in, were probably bigger in 2015 than they ever were. It's like all of us quote-unquote nerds that were Rush fans our whole lives, it became the cool thing, and suddenly Rush was the band that everybody loved, uh, and you could be proud of it in those last 10, 15 years of their existence. I think, yeah, it, it became, they were so uncool that they became cool, and I think there came a point like around when the Beyond the Lighted Stage movie came out, that was also when they made the cover of Rolling Stone for the first time, and that's when they got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I guess after a certain amount of time, you know, you, you become cool and you become in, you're so out of fashion that you become in fashion. And I think that eventually happens with them. As far as I was concerned with Rush, I always felt that they were my band, mm -hmm. even though they would be playing arenas. Um, right. But I always felt that those guys, A, they never compromised. They just did it their way. And that's one thing I always appreciated about them. It's like, I remember going back to when all of us would, you know, having the, the big four, you know, and the common denominator with a lot of us in those other bands was we all loved Rush. Really? And it was, it was always so cool to me because I remember talking to Cliff about this and Kirk, like we always felt that Rush was that band. They did it their way. You know, they never worried about how long the song was if the song was seven minutes so be it 
we had a lot to say in seven minutes. And that's one thing that always stayed with me. Like I always tell Frankie and Scott, no, no, why do we have to cut the song down? Just let the song be, you know? Cliff Burton was a Rush fan, like you just mentioned. Is that correct, Charlie? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because not to drop a name, but I was talking to Lars yesterday about about Neil and he said that his favorite era was was the subdivisions uh signals and 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 moving pictures which is I wouldn't expect Lars to be in that into that era you'd think it'd be more of the Well I remember uh uh you know back in the 80s you'd read those thank you lists on albums when they came out and uh I remember seeing Geddy Neal and Alex thanked on Master Puppets and I was like oh, well, wow I'm, I'm I'm surprised that like Metallica were Rush fans but yeah I was I was always I always remembered that they were thanked on on that thank you list. Well, don't forget that Cliff, who managed Metallica, also had a big hand in Rush. Right. Um, he signed them. Yeah, Cliff Bernstein. Yeah. He, I, and and there was always that connection there too, you know. Um, so I mean, you know, if you're a musician and you grew up in this, at, at this at the same time as all of us, you couldn't help but but. Uh, loving rush especially if you're a, a dude you know what i mean because if you went to see rush back in the day there, there weren't many girls there <laughs> as is, you know we all know and i always loved meeting uh, girls who who loved rush and i was like wow that is rare you know what i mean mm. that you love rush uh but i don't know man like you you mentioned lars's favorite period of rush my favorite period for for rush i'd have to say would be 78 to 82 Mm-hmm. That is when, man, it's like the shit that was created during that time. Well, that that's if you go see them, those are the songs you'll hear. You know, it's funny you mentioned we went and saw uh, Moving Pictures when they did it in its entirety. Uh, we went as a band, uh, Fozzie in Atlanta. And I saw a girl there that I had known probably 15 years prior. She used to be a Hawaiian tropics model. And she was there. And I was like, oh, what are you doing? She goes, Rush, my favorite. She had a Rush tattoo. And I'm like, that's how you know the world has changed when a bikini model (laughs) has a Rush tattoo. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Last couple things. As, As drummers... When you mentioned, you know, learning Rush parts as, as a kid or, or learning them to play, what are some of the hardest songs for you guys that Neil did or some of some of some of the stuff that he did that you would feel is his best work? Well, I mentioned it in one, one of the things in uh, Beyond the Lighted Stage, you know, I mentioned it there, but it really was the truth. To, to me, La Via Strangiato was the benchmark. I mean, all the drummers were trying to learn YYZ, but it's like, no, you really want to. You really want to show, you know, show your stuff. You you had to learn how to play La Via Strangiato. So for me, that was the benchmark. Um, but also Jacob's Ladder. I mean, I've covered so much Rush through the years, so I've, I've had to really dig into that catalog and learn <laughs> the parts. But Jacob's Ladder is uh, uh, one of the hardest parts is the, the, the last half of the song. Um, the, it's brilliant. The, the, the whole seven, seven and six thing, back and forth, back and forth. And that, that was one of the biggest challenges i've ever had trying to learn a drum part so that was a hard one for me i would agree with that one too especially there's a live the live one um i remember what how many times am i counting this part out uh so jacob's ladder was always one of them my other favorite one was free will that breakdown section that one was just like he's a monster And, and that song dude he's just awesome he wins hands down. Free Will is probably my favorite Rush song. Um, but then you have 
other things that he's done, like, uh, we, you know, we can't ignore YYZ because, come on, that that is air drumming. Like, come on. It's just, yeah. it's beautiful. Everything about it is just beautiful. Tom Sawyer, when you go see them live and that part comes up, oh, yeah. every, everybody <laughs> in the arena is just doing it. You know what I mean? It's, it's brilliant. It's fucking awesome. YYZ, too, wins to me for the greatest instrumental title. Because when you're when once again as a kid YYZ listening to it on the cassette no idea what it meant didn't really care and then you hear well that's the code the uh, the airport code for the Toronto airport and it's like what a fucking great idea and then you find out that the rhythm is the Morse code pattern is the Morse code pattern really exactly it's like yeah that spells out YYZ in Morse code I never knew that yeah yeah. See, I I love shit like that. Like, what a it's it's something that the Beatles would do. Like, what a f- smart thing that they just did because they're so damn good. They're just doing these little things just for fun, just to amuse themselves. You know. Yeah. I mean, everything about them was always perfect. To Terry Brown producing their records, mm-hmm. uh, to you know the, the cover Hugh, art. Yeah, the Houston artwork. Yeah. Yeah, dude, it's just every everything about it was uh, was just done so right, you know. Which which you guys did used used in uh, Dream Theater too. It's funny because when I saw Beyond the Lighted Stage, and Terry Brown starts speaking, I'm like, that's the psychiatrist from the beginning of Scenes from a Memory. Yeah, uh, we we worked with Terry Brown. We worked with Paul Northfield. I've worked with Peter Collins, so I've gotten a chance to work with all the the Rush alumni guys, you know, from from, from those days and those albums. Uh, but yeah, and Hugh Symes did covers for you guys too, right? Yeah, I've worked. Uh, I did at least three or four or five different covers uh, when I was still in Dream Theater, working hand in hand with Hugh. And he's, you know, he's such a big part of their look. But Hugh Symes would work hand in hand with Neil, so it was always Neil that was working on those artwork and the album covers and and doing that with Hugh Symes. So Neil actually had a big, big part of that. And another thing, uh, another aspect of Rush that I always loved and. They're the only band I could think of that did this. I was always so into the tour programs. Yeah. The tour programs was always so well done. And I remember each and every tour buying them and reading them, and they would be listing their gear and their equipment. And and uh, and that, that sort of stuff was always Neil overseeing uh, all of the artwork and layouts. And Hugh Simon did, even did all the artwork for his books and everything. I loved the tour program. That's true because I remember going there and just buy I couldn't wait to get that and just sitting there before the show and just reading about yeah. it. Um yeah. and that was another aspect of, of drumming uh for me is like, you know, uh Neil was <clears throat> probably the first real drum hero. Um while other friends had sports heroes and this hero, you know, we never really had a drum hero. Uh, and then he was the guy that I had posters on my wall of him. I remember like the, the Tama poster, that was a big one. Yeah. Um, and then he went to Ludwig. That was a post, you know, man, the guy was just, uh, like Eddie Van Halen to guitar players. This was our hero. Yeah, you know? absolutely. I still have that, that big Tama banner. I'm looking at it right now. It's hanging in my drum room, right? Right behind my Neil kit, I have a Neil replica kit that he actually even signed to me. But um, that poster is still hanging here, just as it was uh, forty years ago when I was a kid. And I have mine in our in our rehearsal room too. That's yeah. that's the greatest thing, and ne- it's never come down. 
Yep. That's your inspiration. Because, Mike, you also did a, a Rush tribute when you were doing those. I remember you did a, a Zeppelin one and you did a Beatles one. What was the Rush one called again? Sickness and the Sea Monsters. <laughs> I was yeah, there. That was, I was there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Charlie was at that show. Exactly. Yeah. And I, awesome. I had a, a, a replica kit, a Tama replica kit. Because, I mean, the only reason I play Tama drums to this day is because Neil, when I was in my deepest rush fanaticism at that point, Neil was a Tama drummer. Uh, so I saved up all my money and bought my first kit, which was, which was a Tama Imperial Star kit, only because Neil was a Tama drummer. What? Um, who sang on that one, on the Cygnus? And- on, on my tribute thing? Yeah. It was uh, Jason McMaster from uh, Watchtower and Dangerous Toys. Uh, no shit. Strange choice, probably, but... You know, I, I, my whole set list was based on early stuff. It was like Cygnus X1 and Hemispheres and 2112. And there's obviously not many singers that could sing that stratosphere, that high, yeah. high range that Getty was doing in those early days. So, yeah, it was myself, Paul Gilbert, uh, Jason McMaster, and Sean Malone from Cynic on bass. I remember all the, on that Rush tribute that I was talking about, the, it was uh, Anthem with Mark Slaughter on vocals. I think Mark Slaughter is saying it even higher. I'm like, you can't, you're not supposed yeah. to sing it higher than Getty. That just doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say one last thing, too, about uh, about Neil's drumming. You mentioned that I love the fact that when he finally did come back on the Vapor Trails record, the, the first song was One Little Victory, and it starts with a drum solo. And I was like, that's pretty f- cool. And it's a really cool part, too, where you're like, all right, he's back. You know, Neil, Neil is back. The first time I saw Rush was um, 1982. And um, the, the encore, if I remember correctly, his drum solo was in the encore. So the, the entire show ended with Neil's drum solo. I mean, wh- when, when have you ever seen a show where the drum solo was placed at the very right. end of the night? But that was such a, a respectful thing to say. Like, <laughs> you know, what, what, what can you do after that? I remember, like, when the drum solo came up at that point in the show, it was like, you know, everything like time stood still and you just were captivated. Like, here he comes. This is, Oh, you know, Neil is God. Neil is God. You know, it was just an aura that he had, um, in the drum world. And, and like Charlie said, he was, you know, the way that guitar players had Eddie Van Halen and Jimi Hendrix. I mean, Neil was that guy for the drum world. Well, and not to mention too, even like on the last tour in 2015, he's still doing a drum solo. How many bands, could get away with that in this day and age. Whereas with Rush, you expected it, but there's no other, I wouldn't put up with a drum solo at the, you know, in this day and age, you know, if, if it's Neil Peart, you're going to sit there and watch the whole damn thing. You're not going to get a beer or, or take a piss. No, no, you definitely waited for that moment. And, uh, I remember when YYZ would be the song, uh, here it comes. And like Mike just said, you just kind of waited and, you just told everybody around you, sh- 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 shut up, you know, and just, that was it. And you, that was your YouTube for, you know, right. yeah. 10 minutes, you know. Exactly. Do you think that, uh, I mean, it's interesting because just a couple of weeks ago, Mike, you were in the middle of rumors that, uh, that the rush was going to do a, 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 was it farewell to King's 40th anniversary? And, and they were going to tap yeah, you permanent waves, permanent waves yeah. and they were going to have you play drums. I mean, a rumor obviously, but do you think Alex and, and Getty will ever do anything again? No, no way. First of all, even before Neil passed, I don't think they ever would do anything without it being the three of them. Uh, and now, now more so than ever, I can't ever picture it. The only thing I, I could picture um, 
is maybe a tribute show perhaps or something like that. But uh, to actually go out and tour as Rush or even not as Rush, but with another drummer, I, I don't think in a million years it would ever happen. Even as like the Lee and Lifeson project or something along those lines? No no, no way? I don't think so. Because Alex no. is having problems with his with his hands as well, right? Yeah, he has been for a while. It's, it's you know it's well documented. I don't think it's a secret. He's been having arthritis issues for years now. I think that's a great idea to do a tribute show because you know everybody would show up for that one. Right, absolutely. Well, I know Charlie and I would. <laughs> I'll be there. Right. Yeah, I'll be there. <laughs> I'll play tambourine in the corner. Uh, last question for you. What's your favorite uh, favorite Rush album? I'll go, I guess I'll go. Um, it's so hard to pick one, but for me, it's always been Permanent Waves. To me, that's like just a perfect album. Six songs of perfection. And, and I know you could say the same thing about moving pictures, uh, but to me, Permanent Waves was the perfect medium between the complexity of Hemispheres and the the polished, more accessible songs of moving pictures, Permanent Waves was kind of the bridge between those albums. So as much as I love, you know, all of those early albums, I think Permanent Waves would be the top pick for me. Charlie? Uh, I'd have to go with Permanent Waves as well. There's just something about that album that just excites me um, from start to finish. There's moments on that record, like I said earlier, about Free Will. It's probably my, my favorite Rush song. It's jam-packed with the, the the greatest you know performances by all three. Alex's solo in that song, mm. to this day, I still cannot understand how he's doing it and what he's doing, the way it just kind of uses the whammy bar to just bend the strings up. And then it, it's just brilliant. And some of the best lyrics are on that record, too. Uh, Jacob's Ladder is awesome. Yeah. Also, uh, Permanent Waves, an interesting note that it was the very first album to be released in the 80s. And it was it came out, I think, the first or second week of January 1980. So it really was the start of a new decade. And it's just kind of, uh, you know, ironic or or sad that here we are the very, very start of this decade and the first weekend. You know, I'll never be able to think of how, you know, 2020 began and this whole decade began then I won't be able to ever think of it as anything other than Neil's passing within the first week. Yeah, that first is, uh, yeah. yeah. And, and I think one thing just quickly about moving pictures is um, that's my favorite. And I'll tell you the reason why, because when they played it in its entirety, that's when I really re fell in love with side two. Cause obviously everyone knows the four juggernauts on side one with Sawyer and Berchetta and YYZ and limelight, but camera, I vital signs, witch hunt. I mean, seeing those songs live, it's like, those are great songs and they're not overplayed um and i just really really kind of like i said had a a new appreciation for those tunes when i saw them play it live and when you mentioned uh you mentioned witch hunt which was always one of my favorites off of moving pictures because i just thought it was so heavy yeah um uh and I, when I saw them do it live too, I noticed the way Neil was doing it, and he was playing the cowbell with his left left foot, and I was like, "Whoa!" I, I, I like he it made my head spin because I was mm. like, "Wow, there he goes!" You know, just kind of edu- educated me about, uh, on that song, and uh, yeah, I mean. Moving Pictures is an awesome record, but if it wasn't for Permanent Waves, there'd be no yeah. Moving Pictures. I also love the, the, the cover, too. They're actually moving pictures. Like, they're moving pieces of art. I just always thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> it's funny, because when we were in Toronto, this is going back a couple of years ago, and we're driving, 
And out of the corner of my eye, I see the building. And after all these years of touring, I've never seen this. And then I made the driver stop and I got out and took a picture in front of it. Um, <laughs> I posted, I posted that picture today. Um, it's just such a highlight, you know, it's just, Oh, that's the building moving pictures. Mm-hmm. Isn't it like a government building? It's the, I'm just it's looking Toronto. right now. It's the Ontario legislature in Queens park, Toronto. <laughs> Mike, let's finish off with your uh, Neil Peart last name story. If we don't get to it, people will be wondering what it is. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's not, um, it's not such a great story, but it just, there was always that question. How do you say his last name? Is it Pert? Is it Peart? You know, you, you'd always have the, the smart Alex at school saying, Oh, it's not Pert, it's Pert, it's Pert. And uh, anyway, that first time when I did get to meet him, um, I was up in his uh, hotel suite with him and he picked up the phone to dial down to the, the front desk for whatever reason. And he said, uh, Yeah, th- you know, this is Mr. Pert in, in room 12, floor two, or whatever. And I was like, Okay, I just heard it from the horse's <laughs> mouth. That's great. <laughs> well, here's to Neil Peart, uh, greatest of all time. Uh, you know, great player, great guy, great lyricist, and uh, a huge loss. And I'm glad we got a chance to talk about him today, guys. It's a little bit cathartic to be able to do that. Yeah, totally. Thanks, guys. Hey, I'll see you guys next week, right at, at Nam. I got yeah. the uh, Jericho cruise, so I'll be out on sea, but I'll, I'll miss you guys. So uh, have a McAllen for me. Oh, I didn't get an invite, Shannon. <laughs> One of these days, I'll be able to afford both of you. I'll put you on the cruise. Yeah. All right, cool. All right. Thanks, guys. All right, guys. Talk to you soon.